Sudden impact. You've ever had one of those times in your life where you encountered a sudden impact? I remember in 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana. And when I grew up in Louisiana, I remember as a child and as a teenager, we were always told this, that one day a hurricane will hit and it will flood the entire city of New Orleans. A flood is coming. It's not a matter if, it's when it will occur. And so in August of 2005, that's exactly what happened. Many people from south and north Louisiana and some from even south and east Texas were helping. Uh, matter of fact, our church helped a little church down there. And about a month later, Hurricane Rita hit the other side of Louisiana. Lake Charles, the town where I was born, uh, was flooded and had to be evacuated. Every, I remember going back and every house that I saw for 50 or 60 miles uh, as I went north from Lake Charles, they all had a tarp over them. My parents lost electricity for a couple of weeks. And how do you prepare for something like that? Like, you know, it's going to come, you know, it's coming, but how do you fully prepare? And you go, you get a generator. That's, it's not that simple. There's a whole lot more that goes with it. And it's just difficult and hard. You do what you can to prepare, but there's nothing you can do that will prevent those occurrences if you live near the coast. The same thing is true for our lives because in a very real sense, we live on the coast, metaphorically. It doesn't matter what you do. Sometime, at some point in your life, there will be a tragedy that will strike. In just a few moments, we're going to hear the story of two different men. One, an ancient man, Job, and we'll look briefly at his story as he encountered tragedy. In the second half of my sermon, uh, Bradley Vinson, who's a, a friend of mine and a member of our church here, will share some practical things that you can do to prepare for the tragedies in your life. And Bradley is very well versed. Both of these men have lost children slash grandchildren, and so they know what it's like. And so I want us to look at this story. You know, I, I've shared this before. <coughs> I've done over 200 funerals over my 30 years of being a minister. And the hardest ones are always the ones that involve children. Matter of fact, in my office, I have a picture of two people uh, that I've been a part of their funeral in the last uh, couple of years, and they're both children. It's just a vivid reminder to me of how fragile life is and how un control we are and that we have to recognize that tragedies are a part of our lives. In the culture that we live in, there are really three philosophies that people uh, kind of accept or take when they look at life and when they look at tragedy, when they look at life as a whole, really. And here are the three philosophies that people take. The first one is this, it's moralism, moralism. This is the position Job's friends took. This is the position the Pharisees took. This is a position that many church people still take today. And it goes like this, if I'm really good and I do what I'm supposed to do, 
then God will bless me and he will, so to speak, insulate me from tragedy. If I'll do good, I'll get good. And that's what we believe. And so if I'm receiving the blessings of life, it's probably because I'm so good. And if bad things are happening, there must be something wrong. I must be a sinner or something must be wrong. That's why bad things happen. And there's a whole uh, theodicy. There's a whole lesson on that. And sometimes it is your bad choices, but sometimes it's not. And moralism does not prevent tragedy, i.e., see Job. Just because you're good doesn't mean that you've earned a, a proofed life, so to speak, a undented, an unstained life, a life free from pain. You don't earn it. You don't even deserve it. That's not how we get it. That's not a biblical philosophy. It's a man-made philosophy. Number two, some people are cynics. They go, well, I don't even know if there's a God. And if there's a God, what can he do? Obviously, he doesn't do much about it. So bad things are going to happen. There's nothing God can do. There's nothing anybody can do. There's going to happen. They stink, and life just gets bad and worse and worse and worse, and there's no hope. It's a very fatalistic approach to life, uh, very uninspiring, unencouraging way to view life. There is no God, or there is no God involved. There's nothing to be done when someone dies or I die. That's the worst thing that happened, and it's just all downhill, and there's nothing, there's nothing redeeming ever ha- going to happen. There is no future. There is no hope and because there is no God, and so it just stinks, and it's bad. There's no place for us to take our, our anger or our cries or our weeping. It's just for ourselves, and that's it. That's cynicism, and many people are Uh, adopt that approach to life. But there's a third way, and I call it the gospel of grace. It's the grace philosophy. It's the biblical uh, understanding worldview of life. And it goes like this, that we have been given the grace of God, everything that we have, our life, our family, our resources, health, anything that we have is a gift of God, is a gift of grace that we've been given by Almighty God. We recognize certainly our salvation is a gift, but everything is a gift. It's been entrusted to us. It's not ours. It's on loan as an act of grace unto us. And so anytime something's removed, we recognize it was not ours to begin with, and it was an act of grace that we ever had it at all. It's the gospel. It's the grace life that if we take any other approach, we're going to be constantly asking questions, confused, and not able to deal appropriately with the tragedies that will come in life. doesn't mean that it's going to be easier. The Bible tells us this, that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. The Bible tells us that in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking. In other words, tragedies come to everyone. Matter of fact, if you go to the end of the Gospels, you'll find this. There are three people who are crucified on a cross. There are three people who go through immense suffering. Number one is, I'll call him the bad thief, (laughs) okay? He's committed crimes. He's been in trouble, and he's not repentant, and he's crucified and dies. He suffers, Then there's the repentant thief, the one who's repentant and said, I was wrong. I recognize that. Forgive me. In Jesus, I put my faith in you, and yet he also suffers. 
And then the third is the Son of God, the perfect and holy Son of God, suffers. Suffering comes to all of mankind. And it's not if, it's when. And the question becomes, how will we deal with it? And how will we move forward? Is there a hope? And I think Job teaches us that there certainly is. So if you have your Bibles, let's look very briefly at Job chapter 1, beginning with the first five verses. And let's see who Job is. Now, we know that Job is possibly the oldest book in the Bible. It was probably, Job probably lived sometime around the era of Abraham. So it was a long, long ago before Moses. So he's an old character of antiquity. Uh, Job certainly doesn't know about Jesus at this point, and he doesn't have a Bible. He's in relationship with God, and he has limited understanding, but we see that he is very faithful. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So the first thing that we learn about Job right here is that he is a righteous man. The Bible says he's blameless and upright. It says that he feared God and he turned away from evil. So Job is a good godly man. He's a great guy. He's very, very moral. As a matter of fact, if you were going to adopt the principle of moralism, he of all people should be insulated. We continue. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Now, what does he mean, the greatest? He means the wealthiest. He is the richest. He's the Bill Gates of the East, okay? He is ridiculously wealthy, and he's blameless and good. And the theory back then where many people very much took a moralistic approach was, if you're really good, then you get the blessings of God Almighty and even other cultures or the gods if you're good and if you're faithful. So here's Job. He's good and he's faithful from the outside. He's been immensely blessed. Everybody wants Job's life. Man of great reputation, man of great power, of great recognition, and of great honor. I want to be Job until you finish this chapter. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one each day, and they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He's also a great parent. He's godly, he's wealthy, and he's a great dad. He's offering sacrifice on behalf of his children because in case that they've sinned. So we see that Job is a good dude. But let's move forward. And by the way, many of you know this. I want to encourage you to read the rest of it. We're going to skip to verse 13. But there's also a cosmic discussion going on in the spiritual realm about Job. And you know that, and I encourage you to read chapter 1 and chapter 2 to get a full understanding. But we're going to, in the interest of time, go to verse 13. 
In verse 13, the Bible says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger, Job, who said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, the servants in the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So we know the Sabaeans, who are marauders, so to speak, they come and they attack Job. They've probably been noticing Job's great wealth for a long time. And then we'll see here in just a moment that the Chaldeans come as well. And the Bible says, while they were speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was yet speaking, there came another who said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. Still want to be Job? It's all being ripped away in a moment. The wealth, the prestige, it's children. It's a devastating time. How does Job respond to this? The Bible says, Then Job arose and tore his robe. Kera. Kera is when it's the Jewish practice, the Hebrew practice of renting your robe or renting your shirt when there is a great tragedy in your life. And it is meant to be an outward demonstration. You rip it right over the top of your heart where your skin is exposed And the picture is, I have suffered an incredible wound, an incredible tragedy, a wound so deep that my heart will never fully recover. It's a picture of something dear and near to you being ripped out of your life. And that's why they rip their clothes. And so here it is. He's rent his clothes. He's kara. And then the Bible says what? And then it says he, shaved, he tore his robe and he shaved his head. Another sign of mourning. Everyone would see it will take quite a while for that hair to grow back. Often they would take ashes and they would put it upon their head. It was a humbling picture of tragedy, of suffering. And then the Bible says this. It says he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground. Job didn't do this. Job didn't uh, just start quoting a scripture. Job didn't say, you know, this is pretty bad, but I'm sure God's going to turn this thing around today. He wasn't unrealistic. He wasn't a fatalist. He wasn't an optimist. He wasn't a moralist. He didn't say, God, what did I do to deserve this? God, have you seen what I've done for you? God, have you noticed? No, he mourns. He rinses his robe. He shaves his head. And he falls down flat on his face. He is mourning. And by the way, he's mourning appropriately. Stoicism is not a virtue of Scripture. He mourns. And the Bible says, and then what did he do? The Bible says that he fell on the ground and he worshipped. Right there on his face. He cries out because that's what was within him. He understood this concept of grace that he had been blessed mightily. 
and now it had been removed. And he's not happy about it. He is broken. He is tattered. He is torn. He is stressed. But he falls down, and what comes out of him is what has been built up in him. And he says, naked I came. I came to this earth with nothing, with nothing. And naked I shall return. It appears that all has been taken away from me. And then he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. It was a gift from God. Everything that I have was God's gift to me. And it was his. And now it has been removed. And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Not, he's not saying, thank you, God, this is great. That's not what he's saying. He's going, God, I still believe I still recognize that you are the God of the universe. I don't understand. He knows nothing of the conversation that's going on in heaven. He's left with only his faith. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Because he understood it's not moralism. It's not cynicism. It's grace. There are three forms of grace that God gives us to live our lives. The first one is called common grace. The first type is called common grace. Common grace is the grace that's extended to all of humanity. It's the right to life. It's the gift of life. It's the gift of family. It's the gift of beauty. The common goodness of God that invades all that there is. We see the hints of it. Sometimes places are very dark, but we see the hints of light. All goodness comes from God Almighty. That's common grace. The next type of grace is salvation grace. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. We're saved by grace, not earning it, not through moralism, but through the generosity of the heart of God. We are saved as we transfer our trust to what Christ did for us. Grace is not getting Something that you didn't deserve. Grace is this. It's getting what you don't deserve. So mercy is uh, is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you never should have received in the first place. That's the gift of grace. And then thirdly, there's the empowering grace. It's the spirit that resonates through the believer in Christ Jesus, even though broken, realizing there is still hope. And that God, even in this, will be sovereign and sufficient. Doesn't mean you don't fall down. Doesn't mean you don't shave your head. Doesn't mean that you're not on your face weeping. But there's an eternal hope that one day God will wipe every tear. He will dry every eye. And he will restore the world in which we so long to live in. In a perfected state. I've asked Bradley Vincent who's been through a Job experience, to come and share some practical things that you can do to prepare yourself for the tragedies that will come our way. Good morning, Rock Point. I told this joke in the first service, and then Pastor threw me a softball, so I'm going to do it again. Uh, when he mentioned that he's going to hear from an ancient man and a young man, I thought he was the ancient man. And I was like, don't be so hard on yourself, Pastor. You're holding together pretty good for your age. <laughs> so thank you for the softball. I was able to do that again. But realistically, when, when Pastor gave me the opportunity to 
participate in today's sermon, I thought of the story of when my parents bought me a car like two weeks before I started college. And it was a five-year-old Ford Escort, little beat-up car, and I was packing all my earthly goods in it about to head off to college. And my dad walked me around the car and started giving me maintenance tips, you know, about air pressure and look out for the gauges. When these little lights come on, this is what that means. And then he looked at me and he said, when you have a wreck. And I was like, wow. He said, well, when you have a wreck, be calm, let the car do what it does, and everything will work out. And now in my later years, I realized that my father was not trying to scare me and make me paranoid about wrecking. He was letting me know the reality of statistics about people that drive cars. And because I loved my father and my father loved me, he just wanted me to be prepared for when that came. Now, no matter how much you maintain a car and keep it filled with gas and your air pressure is good, how much you wash it, you may have a fender bender one day. Or you may have a life-altering wreck. But they will happen. I've had mine. And what I use to actually help me prepare for the wrecks or the sudden impacts of life, I use the acronym WRECK. W is worship. We have to have a habit of worship, honoring God for who he is. It's easy to worship when things are good, but you should while things are good. So when things go bad, the habit is there, and you can still honor God for who he is and still pray to God. The thing about Job is that one of the first things he did is he worshiped because he already had a habit of worshiping. He already had a habit of praying for his children. He even prayed for his children just in case they did something wrong. That's habit. Or right relationship in relinquishing control. The right relationship I speak of is salvation. Committing your life to Christ, yielding to his will, understanding his mercy helps us better understand that we're blessed because of the relationship we have with him, not by desired circumstances. E, exercise your faith. The simple question is, what are you leaning on? What are you believing God for? What are you trusting him for? How are you going about your daily life? We all know the story of Noah. And Noah built the ark not even knowing what rain was. So how are we going forward with our lives? Community. Community is a big one. Because our relationship with God is probably the most important relationship we have here on earth. God places people into our lives. And good people helps you have a good life. But also those friends can be there when sudden impact happens. I tell grievers all the time when I speak to them that grief will change your address book. And I usually get a lot of bobbleheads and things like that because they feel that their friends have left them when their tragedy has happened. But I have them think about it this way. If they were a good friend and they really love you, they're probably grieving who you were before your sudden impact. And some of those people are what I call 
closet friends. When you're stuck in the closet and you're moaning and crying and you can't get out, then that phone call comes. That's a closet friend. And it'll help you see the light and bring you out of those closets. So I encourage you to look for those friends. K, keep God's word hidden in your heart. Read scripture. Come to church. Take notes. Go to Bible studies. Have God's word hidden in your heart where you can always help yourself when you feel others can't. And even when you feel you can't speak to God, his word will speak to you from your inside. Now, I try my best to live by this wreck method, as I would call it, to prepare myself. And I was saved when my granddaughter passed away. And I had a relationship with Christ. And I worshiped before. I prayed before. So I wasn't, I'm not Job. It wasn't instantaneous. When my sudden impact happened, it took a while for those things to come back. My prayer life, my worship life. But they were there always pulling on me to get me closer to Christ. So I encourage you to stay prepared. And some of the scriptures that I've used, um, I, you don't have to memorize the book, chapter, and verse exactly, but when it's in you, it's easier for it to come out of you. In Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, it says, I have plans for you to prosper you and not harm you, to give you hope and a future. Genesis 1 is one of my good verses. And God remembered Noah and the animals and caused the wind to blow across the earth and the waters receded. When you think you're drowning in grief, God remembers you. And he can set a wind to dry it all up and let you see dry land. Then John eleven thirty five, which many argue is the shortest scripture in the Bible. Jesus wept. And many people wonder why Jesus wept when he knew he would raise Lazarus. Because Jesus cares about us. And he's there with us to go through with us. He feels our infirmities. So as we prepare for our wrecks when they may come, there are those among us that may have never had the opportunity to prepare for their wrecks or their sudden impacts or even understand why they should prepare. And those people are the children among us. So what do we do to help children after tragedies, after sudden impacts in their lives? We have two of those children in our homes, our grandsons, Alana's brothers. And so I use this acronym to help them. And the acronym is HELP. H, be honest. Have the hard conversations but make sure they're age-appropriate. Children are afraid that their heroes, which are us, have lost control of everything because the sudden impact has happened. We have to help them understand that bad things happen, but not to be afraid. E, express yourself. We have to model healthy grieving and healing. Let our grieving take cues from what's going on in our lives and show them that there is a healthy way to still care and grieve. And make note of that first acronym that I gave you. Keep worshiping, keep the faith, stay hopeful. L, lean in and love. Men, 
we have to show more affection during this time. More hugs, more time spent, more couch time, just hanging out. They have to feel our presence because their security blanket of everything that's going to be all right has been shattered. So we have to fill in the gaps. And I have an additional L that actually happened to us yesterday with our oldest grandson, Bryce. He's eight years old now. And I called that one, let them take the lead. Yesterday, we were at home and we were cleaning the house. And my wife came downstairs and said, Bryce wants to look at Alana's things. And we keep a bin in our house with some of Alana's things in it. And it's tucked away in a closet. And Bryce came upon them and he wanted to look at them. We knew there'd be tears. We knew there'd be sadness. So we prepared for that. But we let him take the lead because that's something he wanted to do. We didn't say, don't do that now. We took his lead. And we knew that that would help in our healing. So be watchful for that also. Then P, patience. We must be willing to tolerate where they are in their grief journey without anger or additional sorrow from our part. Because there are children, we have to be willing to circle back where they are in their grief as they age because their grief will change as they get older. And we have to be willing to do that and have patience and be prepared for that because they are where they are on their journey and we have to have patience with it. Now, I'm a diagram kind of guy, so I have another diagram for you guys. I want you to imagine a circle. Now, inside of that circle, imagine scribbly marks, okay? That scribbly mark is grief or the sudden impact. That circle is life, our lives. What many of us try to do as we try to heal ourselves from grief or our friends from grief or our children, we do our best to make grief smaller. And I argue against that. Instead, what we should be helping them do is expand their lives outside of the grief. And our lives will ebb and flow around the grief. But even at some point, that grief may even change and look different. Well, all the things that used to make us sad don't make us sad anymore. So I'll leave you with that. And I'll say this. Don't try to reduce the size of someone's grief. Instead, try to help grievers expand their lives around it. Now, I've become intimately associated with Job through uh, where my life has taken me. It's odd how God does things for your life in preparation for your tragedies. I, had, uh, I was in seminary, and I actually memorized four chapters of Job and probably can still recite them today. And I studied Job intensely. And within two months, my granddaughter was gone. But here's what I've learned. Uh, here's what Job taught me. This is just kind of what, what my studies have helped me persevere through this. And those who endure suffering with integrity or with grace or God's way may not find relief, but they will develop a stronger resolve to endure even greater suffering. Be blessed. Thank you all. Thank you, Bradley. Well, I want to challenge and encourage you to consider the grace of God. 
We all experience common grace. But have you experienced the salvation grace of God? Have you received his gift of forgiveness? Have you transferred your trust from your own goodness, your own moralism, to what Christ is and for what he has done? I want to challenge you to do that today. Tragedies are going to come. The question is not if, but when. And though there's nothing that will insulate us, there is the empowered grace of the Spirit that gives us hope for the future. I want to invite you to experience the grace of God today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, I thank you that you offer your amazing grace, that you offer not only common grace, but the grace of salvation and the grace of the Spirit. And so, Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would draw them. For those who are believers and are struggling, I pray that you would empower and infuse them with the grace of your Spirit and you would strengthen their hope and their resolve. Lord, draw and bring people to know you today. Speak to them, move in them as we give you the praise. Amen.